Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. In this week's episode, Joe Biden may have won the US election, but does Silicon Valley now rule supreme? Plus, churches are allowed to open during lockdown, but should they? And finally, can comfort food, cosy socks and binging the latest TV series actually replace human contact? First up, Twitter, Facebook and Snapchat have all now suspended Donald Trump's accounts on their platforms, with Twitter, the president's favourite social media account, saying he was responsible for inciting violence. In this week's cover piece, historian Neil Ferguson argues that in dumping Trump, Silicon Valley has finally admitted to the power that it holds. Neil joins me now, together with Greg Bendinger of the New York Times' editorial board. Neil, in your cover piece this week, you say that tech companies have finally unveiled the power that they have. Do you think this has been a long time coming? Yes. I think that the surprising thing really is that so few people, particularly people on the right, realized where things were heading when it was pretty obvious to me after the 2016 election. In fact, I wrote a book about it, The Square and the Tower, and a bunch of articles, including one in The Spectator in in 2017, making the point that although Trump had one, partly because of the way he'd been able to use uh, Twitter and especially Facebook, it seemed unlikely to me that Silicon Valley would let him win again. That was the kind of gist of that piece. And so for me, it was remarkable that conservatives for the next three years did next to nothing to limit the ability of the network platforms, the big tech companies, to censor or at least downgrade content that they deem to be offensive. And because Silicon Valley broadly leans left, it was pretty obvious who would be at a disadvantage under those circumstances. There was a debate to be had about regulation and indeed about legislation. I tried to contribute to it by writing about the problems posed by Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. But to me, the surprising thing was how few Republicans really got it. And so when the moment came, and it was already fairly visible even during the election campaign, but when the moment came for Trump's utter cancellation, people really couldn't, I think, credibly say they were shocked because this had been coming for some time and and was really quite predictable. Greg, I mean, do you see it as being predictable? And do you think that Silicon Valley essentially stopped Trump from winning? Well, I'm sure it's not quite that simple. The actions they took were after the election to ban him from certain platforms. And uh, California is sort of a foregone conclusion uh, in terms of presidential elections. You know, I would just say that lost in some of this discussion is that all of these platforms have the right to, on the one hand, kick anyone off that they wish And they also have the right to let anyone on that they wish to. So Trump was there and others are there at their pleasure. So in in a legal sense, he had no right to be there any more than he has no right to not be there. So we can debate whether the actions they took were responsible, but they certainly had every right to do it from a legal sense. 
And Neil, do you think they were right to kick Trump off their platforms? I don't. And I don't entirely agree with Greg. The key here is that already in 2017, the courts had ruled that the internet is the new public sphere, including a Supreme Court ruling. The courts had ruled that Trump couldn't block people from following his Twitter account as that violated First Amendment rights. And I think if one then continues to argue that somehow they're just private companies that aren't bound by the First Amendment and they can set their own terms of use, that's to miss a fundamental structural shift in the public sphere, which the American courts recognized some time ago. So I think when you have a situation in which a handful of companies can essentially exclude the President of the United States from the internet, that can't be a healthy state of affairs for democracy. And I don't even think it's consistent with where the law has gone in recent years. Just to clarify one thing, I think the role that the network platforms played in the election was a bit different from the role that they played four years before. Facebook continued to be a pretty important source for the spread, the dissemination of pro-Trump messages, including downright mendacious ones. Top trending content on Facebook continues to be well to the right. So I don't want to give the impression that the network platforms were all in against Trump during the campaign. That wouldn't be true. It's more that it was obvious from 2017 that they had the power to cancel or at least fade content that they deemed to be in some way offensive. And because the companies tended to deem conservative content to be offensive rather than liberal or progressive content, you could see the danger. This would all have mattered a bit less if there'd been a kind of neutrality rule of the sort that the old terrestrial networks used to have in the days when television was dominant in the public sphere, but that just wasn't the case. So I think this was always something that could happen. And the skew to the left in the way that content moderation was being done by the companies was already kind of visible before. But it's a whole new state of affairs when the president of the United States can be cancelled. I mean, this isn't like, you know, demoting content produced by Prager University or Ben Shapiro. You're actually taking the president of the United States off the media he's been using to communicate with voters for years. And I think it's actually highly questionable that that is the right thing to do. Now, this is not to say that Trump behaved well. He's behaved abysmally since the election, even more abysmally than before. And I think uh, at least some of what he's done does justify impeachment, particularly the way in which he uh, encouraged the mob to march on the Capitol last week. But the correct response to that, if it is indeed a breach of his oath of office is is impeachment, not cancellation by Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey and Jeff Bezos, because that gives them far too much power. And I don't think it's at all healthy for Democrats to be cheering them on because it isn't written in stone that these network platforms will always be friendly to the left. They were libertarians in the 90s. It's only relatively recently that they became woke. I would push back on the notion that any private company has a responsibility to host anyone. It would be disappointing if one of these platforms said I could no longer participate, but it would be well within their rights. 
I think that you know, perhaps this might be a compelling court case if the president chose to, to sue over his access to any of these platforms. That could be a really interesting result. Law, in my opinion, is far behind the internet and it's, it's high time it caught up in a bit, but I just don't agree that uh, they have any responsibility to keep on anyone that they don't choose, whatever the politics of it. No, this is an interesting point, isn't it? Because you say in your piece that you know the internet is the new public square, but of course the old public square still exists for Trump. He could still hold a press conference. I mean, has he really been cancelled just because he's had his Twitter account taken down? Well, it's been made clear that he gets to use the internet conditional on saying things that uh, the new gatekeepers consider acceptable. His earlier press conference in which he read from a much toned down script was on Twitter via a different account from at real Donald Trump, which has been cancelled. And a number of people said, you see, he hasn't been cancelled. But the point is that that video was on because it was saying things that the gatekeepers thought were okay tone down the violence, peaceful transition. If he'd gone on and said inflammatory things, would the video have appeared? Probably not. So I think the critical point here is to recognize, as I've said, that it's not me who's saying the internet is the new public square. It's the Supreme Court. Let me just quote Justice Anthony Kennedy from 2017. While in the past there may have been difficulty in identifying the most important places for the exchange of views, Today, the answer is clear. It is cyberspace, the vast democratic forums of the internet in general, and social media in particular. And it is an absolutely extraordinary state of affairs that access to the vast democratic forums of the internet is now to be determined by unaccountable private companies on the basis of rules that they appear to make up as they go along, because they constantly change and make more complicated the rules by which they moderate content. I mean, Greg may think it's okay for Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg to decide who gets access to the public square, but the implication of those court rulings that I've referred to is quite different. And what happened was that Congress, and I think Democrats as much as Republicans, failed to appreciate that laws made in the 1990s, when these companies barely existed or were tiny startups are completely inappropriate in the 2020s when they are the biggest corporations in the world. And Section 230 is essentially a catch-22 that allows Facebook and, and Twitter and the others to be network platforms when it suits them and publishers when it suits them and to have no liability for the harm that might arise from the content that they host, but also no obligation to allow people access to the public square. So I, I think Congress is at fault here because there were opportunities to change and update the legal framework. Here, Greg's right, it lags behind technology by decades, but the politicians didn't take those opportunities. And it's Republicans who are going to pay for this much more than Democrats, who I don't think will bother about this issue over the next four years. They'll just let antitrust actions go ahead. But those won't do anything to change the state of affairs, where a tiny number of companies now control access to the public square. And Greg, what do you think this all means for social media in the long term? You wrote this week for The New York Times about how 
what Trump really exposed was these companies' willingness to look the other way so long as it leads to more clicks. I mean, it's an interesting dilemma for them, really, because do they need people like Trump in order to survive, to sort of create the debate and the drama? Yeah, in some ways, we've seen that the market reacted strongly to them taking Trump off. He was a very attractive reason to come to Twitter or Facebook. Tens of millions of people every day came to his accounts. And so you could argue that they shot themselves in the foot by suspending and blocking him. But yes, we have seen over time that the, the, the sort of the most polarizing viewpoints on these platforms are the ones that get the most airtime. And they are more likely to, to be heard, more likely to be seen, more likely to be advertised against. And that's really, you know, at the end of the day, these are businesses and they're making business decisions. You know, I would just point out again that in that framework, being a business, American law has generally said, if you're a business, you can act a lot like a private individual. And so private individuals have no responsibility and no legal requirement to have people in their homes or their place, their small place of business saying things that they don't agree with. And once again, that's the action that it seems they took to me this week, over the past two weeks and in, 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 in shutting down these accounts. And so it seems consistent with, with law here to me. Thank you, Neil, and thank you, Greg. Next. Churches are allowed to open right now through lockdown. Some, however, have independently decided to close their doors in an attempt to stop potential coronavirus transmission. In this week's magazine, Father Jonathan Beswick, the rector of St Peter's, London Docks, explains why he's keeping his church open. He joins me now, together with the very Reverend Peter Howell-Jones, Dean of Blackburn Cathedral, which has moved all of its services online. Father Jonathan, in this week's issue of the magazine, you write about why you've decided to keep your church open during the latest lockdown. Can you explain to listeners why you've decided to do so? I think the simple answer is that people are desperate and we're in a very different situation from the one we were in nine months ago for all sorts of reasons. And it feels very different this time round and people have got very few options in terms of places to go. Whether that is simply for the practical space, getting out of a tiny flat with a load of children and people trying to work from home, or whether it is seeking spiritual comfort and solace, churches are places where people can come and find the love of God. And we've taken all the precautions we've been asked to take in terms of uh, safety and, and people's well-being, and I think feel in our setting that it's the right thing to do. Peter, you're the Dean of Blackburn Cathedral and you've decided that Blackburn Cathedral needs to be closed at the moment. Can you explain your decision on that front? Yeah, welcome. Thank you. Nice uh, to be part of this podcast. It was a very, very difficult decision to make. Blackburn, as people probably know, has had significant numbers of cases uh, throughout the whole year. And whilst at this particular time, a couple of weeks ago, we were not one of the top uh, places for COVID, we were still pretty high. But last week we were approached, or, or the whole faith communities were across Lancashire, by the three directors of public health who said, you know, we have no authority to, to close you or ask you to close. But actually, the, the numbers of cases are rising rapidly. So there'd been a 71% increase here, uh, and they, they were just asking for the goodwill of people to consider closing. So I spoke with a number of people, got in touch with hospitals, checked it all out, and it just seemed to be a responsible leadership thing to do. Yes, we don't have to close, 
but it seemed with the rising pressure on local hospitals, and I think bearing in mind the fact that actually at the end of the day, there's nobody who really knows uh, all the issues surrounding COVID, but it seemed a responsible thing to do. It was also about taking public health seriously in a time of national crisis. Whilst, yes, you know, I want to keep my cathedral open. Yes, I'm a great believer in public worship. Yes, I'm a great believer in private prayer in the space. I think it's important to recognise that the, the primary issue here is one of public health and safety. And it's not just about the building. And this is, I think, where the church has been a little bit skew with. Because whilst the building itself and ours is perfectly COVID safe, it's an enormous space, people can't teleport themselves from their front room to the cathedral nave. They have to come out of their front door, they might have to use public transport, they might share a car with somebody, they might think on the way home, ooh, I'm passing Starbucks, I'll get a coffee on the way home. And it's all those added places where they could contract the virus unknowingly. So it's not just about the worship space, it's about the getting there. And of course, the mandate is stay home, stay safe, act as if you've got the virus. Father Jonathan, have you come under any pressure to close the church from either public health officials or council leaders? We have. Well, it was very carefully worded and and they said they wanted us to think very carefully about whether we're absolutely certain of maintaining COVID secure precautions and to close if we have any concerns. So they haven't said please close, but it's pretty close. Father Jonathan, do you think you're going to be able to keep the church open in the coming weeks? As long as somebody remains healthy enough to do so, then God willing, yes, we will. I mean, you say the next few weeks, the Prime Minister's announcement was a little bit, uh, don't call us, we'll call you when it's over. This, um, Some of my colleagues, and I have the greatest respect for the decisions that people have made, churches and cathedrals are very different from one another in their in their context but one or two of my close colleagues around here have said we've taken the you know the, the reluctant decision to close for a very brief period now uh, what criteria do we have to meet to be reopening that's I, I think it could be longer than just a brief period peter one of the points that father jonathan makes in his piece is that it's worth keeping the church open even if it just stops one person from feeling isolated or in despair would you agree with that I think isolation is a really, really important point. I think what we have to do is be honest. And I think the vast majority of churches across the United Kingdom were not open on a daily basis prior to COVID. And this is one of the things I used to be director of mission in Birmingham Diocese. It used to frustrate me. Why do we have buildings when we lock them? And there, there had been a, you know, because of vandalism and all sorts, people kept their buildings open. But suddenly during COVID, we've suddenly changed our perspective and said, oh, everyone wants to come to our buildings. And I think the issue is, it's not about buildings, it's about feeling connected. So I think one of the things we've done here is, you know, we've spent a lot of time getting people to ring people up. I was talking to you earlier about writing personally to members of the congregation. And I think it's about thinking creatively about how we help people in loneliness, how we help people when they feel anxious. You know, I think faith is really, really important. Buildings are really important. We are a community faith. 
But I think scripture teaches us at the end of the day, you know, Jesus said to the woman of the well in, in John's gospel, you know, you know, the time is coming when we'll worship in spirit and truth. It's not about holy mountains and it's not about Jerusalem. It's actually about a relationship with the living God and how we help people to do that, surely to goodness. COVID is a wonderful opportunity to do that. Yes, we want to get back into our buildings, but we need to be safe and show responsibility, I think. And Father Jonathan, you write in your piece about setting up an outdoor crucifix for prayer, and you say that you've continued to ring the church bell. How has your congregation responded to this? People were devastated that our church had to be closed to the public in in the spring of last year. Our church is normally open all day, every day, seven days a week. Uh, People were delighted that there was some place for them to come. The crucifix was in the porch, uh, the the entrance porch to the church, so that people could be outdoors. We were blessed with wonderful weather, and they could come, they could light a candle and say a prayer. And uh, we had a notice up saying, one person at a time, please, to make sure that people were doing that uh, and taking care of each other. But it was the the take-up was huge. And actually, having to dismantle it, felt very sad, but the reason for dismantling it was so we could open the church doors again, so that was great. Peter, one of the other points that Father Jonathan makes, which I think is an interesting point of discussion, is that he says that some people have accused church leaders who have still been going to church of flashing their privilege. What, what do you make of that point? I think, I think it's a really interesting point. I think we have to be very careful about how we function both as individual Christian leaders and also about as a faith community. And yes, you know, in many ways, we are safer than going to the supermarket to buy goods. I guarantee Blackburn Cathedral can socially distance better, you know, than Tesco, Morrison's, wherever. Uh, But at the end of the day, just because something is permissible or legal Is it the wise thing to do? And I think there is a danger that some people look at the church, particularly those maybe who have problems with the church, and they say, yet yet another example of, of the church having privileges which the rest of us don't have. And I think the key thing for me is it's about how we help to nurture the faith through times of trouble. And if the only way we can nurture faith Uh, is through our building, then I think that's a bit sad. What Jonathan's saying, he's made some really, really good points. He's made a really great effort to put a crucifix outside of the church, people can light candles. That's really, really good. But I don't think we, we, at this moment in time, it's even about that. It's about staying home and staying safe. It's about acting as if we've got COVID. And if that's what our government is saying, if that's what our national health officials are saying, if that's what our directors of public health are saying, I just think we run a real risk of saying, well, actually, we say, don't worry about that. Come to church. You'll be safe. And actually, what's interesting, I had a number of uh, emails from older members of our congregation when I did this. They emailed me. And a number were along the lines of, gosh, that was a really difficult decision for you to make. I'm glad you've made it because I was feeling guilty if I didn't come to church. And I think there is this problem that people sometimes feel, I've got to go to church, I've got to have communion, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And, but they didn't want to because they were anxious about their health. And once I'd come out and said, we're closing, it's, it's interesting how people responded. They were delighted, really, that I'd almost given them the opportunity to miss Mass for a Sunday and they weren't going to get a black mark against their name. 
Father Jonathan, you, you say in your piece that the fundamentals of worship don't really go online, though, any more successfully than a visit to the pub. I mean, do you think an online service can ever take the place of physical worship? I don't. It, it can never take the place of it. It can hold together some elements that are familiar from an act of physical worship, but it can, can never take its place. And I think at the heart of a lot of these conversations about closing churches or opening them or what matters and what we should do and whether we should stay at home or not is a question of do we provide something that's essential to human flourishing or is it something that's desirable or an optional extra? And I can remember being struck during the first lockdown Firstly, by the sense that it was more important than ever to be out and about in the parish. A priest can't work from home, though we spend a lot of time in and around our parsonage or deanery or wherever we live. Nonetheless, we're also out and about a lot. And a big part of our ministry is that ministry of presence, of reassurance, of conversation at a distance of two or three metres, that the person who works in in the local Aldi or the local chicken shop or the local off-licence, nobody looks askance at them going to work nor, I would argue, should anybody look askance at a priest going to work, going about their business. I think it it is a question of whether we regard what is offered through worship, through Christian ministry, as essential, or as something that's in the category of uh, the non-essential recreational. I totally, totally agree with Jonathan there. This This is an essential part of our life as Christians. What is essential is the worship of God. What is not essential, I don't think, is actually going to a building. And I think that's one of the challenges that we're facing within the church. And there's a whole spectrum of viewpoints on that. But actually what we what what is critical is that our faith is nurtured and nourished. And that can happen, I think, both in buildings and at home. But we shouldn't say that we can only nurture people's faith in buildings. I think the early church proved that because they met in their homes. Thank you, Father Jonathan, and thank you, Peter. Finally, everyone has tried to enjoy their home comforts during the pandemic, but in this week's magazine, Laura Freeman argues that the self-care trend of buying luxe loungewear and indulging in the latest Netflix series has made her more introverted and apprehensive of social interaction. To discuss, she joins me now, together with Dr Shira Gabriel, a psychology professor from the University of Buffalo. Laura, in this week's magazine, you write about what you call the stifling culture of self-care. Can you start by explaining to listeners what exactly is self-care and why you found it so frustrating? Well, I think self-care has sort of grown out almost of wellness, but whereas wellness said, you know, make your body strong, make your body serene, your body is a temple, feed it with green juice and avocados and do lots of yoga, self-care sort of says the opposite, which is that your body is terribly delicate, you are terribly fragile, you must be cosseted and coddled and consoled with chocolate chip cookies. And I think the whole message is put you first, look after yourself. And, you know, it was in currency before lockdown, but in some ways lockdown has given it new impetus because we are all at home, we are all feeling a bit glum and the allure of a bubble bath seems, you know, all the greater. And the reason I suppose I object to it is I just think it's a terribly old-fashioned message in a way. It's principally aimed at women, it's marketed at women, a lot of the products associated with self-care, whether it's, you know, chocolate or cashmere or, you know, luxe loungewear, they're, they're all aimed at women. And I think it basically has this narrative that we're all sort of rather feeble and must be wrapped in cotton wool. And you say in the piece that if you're of a more nervous disposition, this is actually really the last thing that you need to be hearing. 
Has this been a hard message to hear during lockdown? Yeah, and, and, and I, I don't write this piece unfeelingly. You know, I write it because I am a nervous soul who finds, you know, everything from getting on a bus to appearing on a podcast, you know, nerve-wracking. And I think the way that I have managed in life is just, you know, you do the, the things that scare you and you build confidence and, you know, grit is good, resilience is better. And I think one of the difficulties of lockdown, and I should just state that I'm not a lockdown sceptic or a fusenic, I completely understand the need for it. But I think for a lot of us who've kind of been, you know, forced back into our homes, into these rather, you know, claustrophobic, you know, cabin feverish settings. I think many people have lost confidence in, in all the things they used to do without thinking, you know, from commuting to going to the office to public speaking. And I worry that for a lot of people, it's actually going to be quite hard to get that confidence back. Shira, your research has looked at comfort eating and the binge watching of TV shows and whether or not that can replace human contact. Can you tell us about what you found and whether it confirms or contradicts what Laura is writing about in this week's issue? So, you know, we found that people can use alternate ways of social connecting during times when they can't find other means of social connecting or even during normal times. So, you know, we're a very social species. We need connection with other people in order to feel happy and healthy and to ward off things like anxiety and depression. But we're also very flexible in how we do that. So we don't necessarily just have to do it by spending time in person with other people. We can also do it by playing games online with other people or communicating through Zooms or even doing things like watching a favorite television show and feeling connected to the characters or eating our favorite foods and feeling the connection to the people who made those foods for us or the memories associated. And those have been things that people have done a lot throughout quarantine to sort of help them get through is when you aren't able to spend time with your friends that you're able to sort of turn to your favorite television show and feel connected. And you're also able to remember the other times and, and hold on to hope for the future by keeping those connections. So even though I've focused on the ways that people can make themselves feel better during quarantine, I actually think that my take home message in a lot of ways is very similar in that we're sort of emphasizing that people are resilient and able to cope with things that they might think that they're not able to, that they're stronger than they necessarily think that they are. They don't have to sort of you know, hide or they don't need to get the message that this is something that, that they're unable to deal with. The human beings are very capable of adapting to new situations and that finding ways to still feel connected to others and still feel as if you have agency during this time is, is really important. I mean, if those sorts of things make you feel better, I think that they're fine. You know, there's a long list of things that we can do to try and help ourselves through difficult times. And people need to ask themselves what works for them rather than feeling as if they need to do what works for other people. One of the points that Laura makes is that our malaise at the moment isn't really treatable, though, with fluffy socks and duvet days, as she says, but instead busyness, purpose and full diary days. I mean, do you think that all these things you're mentioning can really ever replace human contact? They cannot replace human contact in the long term because there are things we can get out of contact with other people, but they can and do help us 
in daily life. So, I mean, even research that we've done, most of our research was done before quarantine and before people were locked up and had limited options. And that research found that these sorts of activities help people, that they're a part of a healthy life. So people feel guilty about the time that they spend watching TV or eating their favorite comfort foods. And they shouldn't feel guilty about those things because those are a part of a healthy life. We find that the people who are healthiest and happiest and deal well with their lives are people who actually have a mix of these things. They have traditional ways of connecting to others, close relationships, but they also have these non-traditional ways. And sometimes those are better after a long day or when you're very stressed out or when you don't have access. So basically these are all tools in the toolkit. And I think that the points that that Laura has made in her piece are wonderful and really useful because you don't want to only turn to these things. Certainly anyone who is limiting themselves to one way of feeling better is not giving themselves the kinds of tools that they may need in really difficult times. We also have to acknowledge that everyone is different and that what makes some people feel better isn't going to work as well for other people. But certainly feeling as if you're still busy and you still have things going on in your life and you're still productive and able is really also very important. Um, And those are also things that can be difficult at these times. I don't think that the two things necessarily have to be pitted against one another. Laura, if if it's not diptyque candles and lavender pillows, what have you found to be particularly helpful and to provide solace during during the past year and all the various lockdowns that we've been through. I'm a great fan of the long muddy walk or at least as, as long and as muddy as current government restrictions allow. <laughs> but the thing I, I sort of I suppose I wanted to add to and, and one of my real objections about self-care is it so much turns you inwards and I think it's particularly absurd in the last year when many people have driven themselves into the ground, caring for others in often impossible situations. And I do think the message of self-care could be turned around completely. And that hour that you might have spent sort of, I don't know, applying rich moisture lotion to your feet, you could, I don't know, ring an elderly aunt who's on her own, remember the friend who's got the young baby and is finding it hard and send them a parcel. I just think that, you know, the self-care thing, you know, yourself is probably fine, but other people might not be. And you might even feel better about yourself if you helped others. And Shira, how about you? What have you found to be particularly helpful during the pandemic? You know, I agree with Laura that that keeping busy and, and getting outside and getting exercise are important things. I would like to really emphasize again that everyone should look at their own situation, you know. So I think starting from a place of saying that you're probably fine may be true, but it might not be. I mean, some people aren't fine. And certainly if you are in a situation, for example, where you're living with small children and you're trying to school them at home and you're also trying to work at the same time, then you really might might benefit from some time to yourself and doing and allowing yourself some luxurious time where you lock the door to a bathroom and and are by yourself. If you're not in that situation and you have the time, then I I 100% agree with Laura. And I think there's a lot of research to support the fact that the best way to make yourself feel better is to make other people feel better, to reach out and and send people packages and make those phone calls. It's not only going to help other people, but research suggests that it does help us feel much better too. So I think that everyone needs to look at their own situation and how they're living during this time and and think about what is best for them. This shouldn't be a big time of judgment, in my opinion. I don't want to judge how anybody else is doing things and and look down on, on somebody else's path because this is hard and it's hard for different people in different ways. 
Thank you, Laura, and thank you, Shira. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you pick up a copy of the magazine, you'll find all the pieces discussed in this podcast, along with Chris Patton on how Britain to respond to China's takeover of Hong Kong, Simon Barnes on the ethics of eating octopus, and Lara King on the political power of America's first dogs. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.